0: This is recording number 10792 from the Teaching Ministry of Crossroads Community Foursquare Church in Vallejo, California. This is the third and final message in the Thank God series by Randy Bolt. It was recorded on Sunday morning, November 23, 2008. This message is titled, For Tomorrow. I'm going to uh, conclude uh, this series of messages about the things, and I and I admit it's a little self-serving, but about the things that I'm particularly thankful for this Thanksgiving season. Two weeks ago, we talked about how um, I am thankful for you. Thank God for you. Last week, we talked about how I am thankful for mercy. Thank God for mercy. And today uh, we're going to conclude by talking about tomorrow. I'm I'm grateful there's a tomorrow. And uh, if you're not already, I think before we're done today, you're going to be too. Thank God for tomorrow. John chapter 8. Let's begin reading at verse 2. This is a familiar story. And I'm actually not going to put a whole lot of emphasis on all that could be drawn from this passage, but I want to lay it out as sort of a backdrop uh, upon which we can uh, uh, add some, some other um, items from the scripture that tell us about God's intentions for our tomorrows. Verse 2, chapter 8, John. Now, early in the morning, he, and the he is Jesus. Now, early in the morning, he came into the temple. Make note of that. Jesus is coming into the temple, into a very public place. And all the people came to him. So he's not alone there either. There's a lot of people there to see and to hear um, Jesus. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned or killed by stoning them to death. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. See, they don't care. This is a very ugly, brutal, um, despicable scene. And the ones who have created it, the scribes and Pharisees, they really don't care about this woman. They don't care about the adultery. The only thing that they're after here, they've created this whole monstrous moment To see if they can catch Jesus in some kind of action or words that will turn the crowds against him. And they think they've got him nailed to the wall. But Jesus, in the middle of verse 6, but Jesus stooped down. Notice that he doesn't gawk or stare, he's the only one who's affording this woman any sort of dignity. He alone is uh, demonstrating concern and care for her. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, they keep pressing him, What do you say? Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? Moses says we should. Right here, Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? Finally, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Notice the word Lord there. The Bible says that we, we can't call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, sure, you could use the words. Anybody could use the words. You can anybody can. It's not like a person who is not a believer in Jesus can't get the word Lord out of their lips. It's not like they can't, and they can't get it out. What that passage means when it says that no one, when Paul's writing to the first Corinthians, or the writing to the first Corinthians, writing to the Corinthians in his first letter to them, and says no one speaking under the inspiration of the Holy or without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit can say Jesus is Lord. What he's meaning is that nobody can express what that means. Nobody can say it with the heart that it deserves. No one can say, Lord, except that the Holy Spirit has done a work in their life to bring them to a point where they recognize that Jesus is not just some historical character, not just a person of note, but the Lord. And that's what's happening here. This woman says, no one. In answer to the question that Jesus posed to her, Where's your accusers? Is anybody left to accuse you? She says, no one, Lord. Then in the middle of verse 11, Jesus responds and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus said to them again, or spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So, this woman uh, was, was caught. She's caught red-handed. I'm not sure if that's the right metaphor, but she was caught in the act of adultery. And the Mosaic law did demand capital punishment for adulterers. Now, you can, you can argue with God about that. I don't suggest you do, but you could argue with God about that you know, God, that doesn't seem to be deserved. What, what if we had capital punishment and enforced it in the state of California or the United States of America for those who were ad, uh, committed adultery? Wouldn't be too many. We, our population would decline rather rapidly. <laughs> and so you could you could uh, make the you could argue with God about, well, that seems rather harsh, God, and that that, that doesn't seem to that seems old fashioned, or I don't know what it seems. It doesn't seem right. But I want you to think about, and this is clearly not the point of the message, but I know that that comes up in people's minds. Wow, we have a God in heaven who he would command people to be stoned if they, to death if they commit adultery. Where's the, where's the mercy in that? Where's the grace in that? Well, when God gave the Mosaic Law, it was for one purpose and one purpose only. It was to show us a picture of what holiness is. And holiness involves fidelity. Have you ever wondered when you write, write a check at the grocery store and you hand it to the clerk and they say, can I see your ID, please? Have you ever wondered why it is they don't just believe me? Because we, we tolerate infidelity. Our, our culture is so saturated with it, we can't trust anybody. You notice this. Somebody makes an advertisement, claims about a product. You know your mind clicks into, oh, yeah, right. I don't believe that. Where's the proof? We have our heart. We don't even know. We don't even. We're not even aware of how pervasive our culture has been saturated by infidelity. And so if the primary relationships in our culture, husbands and wives, if you can't find it there, if you tolerate infidelity there, it just begins to spread and create the mess we have. And God, when he was giving the law to Moses and to the, and to the Hebrews, he was saying, I don't want you to have a world like that. And that's why uh, he made a strong statement about it. Now, that's really not the point of the message. The point is, this woman is guilty and dear ones, her life is over. Her life is over she stands accused of a capital crime and, and there's, there's no defense. She was caught in the very act, not, not to mention the fact that it takes two to commit adultery and you know, some, somehow or another the guy doesn't, isn't brought into trial. But laying that aside, she has no defense. Have you ever been reached a point in your life where you've thought, you know, my life is over? And I, I don't mean that, you know, you, you, you thought you were going to keel over and, and die on the spot. But everything that, you know, all of the hopes and everything you imagined your life to be has come to an end. And you know it. And you feel it. And you know that, when, that beyond this point, beyond this point where your life is, as you had dreamed and expected and anticipated it would be, beyond that point where, where it ends, is just... Maintenance. You know when you step into the next frame, it's just existing. It's just maintaining. It's just all of the hope, all the anticipation, all the expectation is gone. It ends here. How many of you would raise your hand to say, I know what that feels like. I've been there. I remember, I've told this story before, and uh, so pardon me if you've heard it, I'm sure. You know I'm kind of, I'm at the stage in my life where, number one, I can't remember if I've told you a story before. <laughs> and number two, I, you know, I, I, I find myself doing what old people do and just repeating myself. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I remember sitting in a shopping mall, having moved back to the Bay Area from the, from the, the central part of California, have a new address, now I need to... Um, re-register to vote. And so they had a little table set up there in the, in the mall. My, my wife went off shopping and I was going to park myself on a bench and wait for her. For God knows how long. But anyway, <laughs> I, so I decided to pass the time by completing a voter registration form, picked it up from the table and sat down. And I wrote my name on it and then it says occupation and I could not, could not get past that point. I didn't know what to write there. Because you see, at that point in my life, I was at one of those end-of-life things. From the earliest stages of my life, like, you know, nine years old or so, the only concept I have in my mind of what my life would be was to be a pastor, someone who cared for the flock of God, someone who taught the scriptures. That's all I could imagine my life being from that point on. And things had happened. I I felt as though my pastoral life, my my life as a pastor was over. I'd come back here to the Bay Area having resigned from a church that that I had pastored and and no prospect of of returning to full-time pastoral ministry. And it seemed to me as though my life was was over my life that I had imagined f- for all those years over, and so I couldn't write on that line, you know minister or pastor or you know uh, clergy or occupation i didn't know what I was i didn't know what to write there. all I could imagine was then my stepping into the next frame was just maintenance, just uh, making sure the bills get paid and my kids get raised, and you know those are good things, but Something was about to die or had died. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've experienced that. Things that you had imagined come to an end. Here's this woman. She uh, has no future. She has no future. Now, the thing about these uh, intersections, when you reach them, is you don't get there in isolation. It doesn't happen overnight. There's a story. This woman shows up on the pages of the scriptures in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. There's a backstory. It wasn't that just one day she decided, I mean, it's hard to imagine anyway, that just one day she decided, oh, I think I'll ruin my life today, go sleep with this guy. No, there's a whole story undoubtedly, family system, choices she's made, perhaps perhaps economic constraints that forced her into a, a prostitution lifestyle. We don't know. We, the, the, some of the details are not here. We don't know whether, you know, adultery is uh, sex between at least one married party, and we don't know if uh, which one or both of them were married. We don't know that information but it's not hard to imagine that there's a backstory, and that this act that has brought her to the end of her life as she had anticipated and known it was not an isolated act. It was the, it was the product of a whole uh, array of things. So it is for you and me when we come to that point at times when it seems like what we anticipated our life being is dying. It's, it's a whole... Scenario of things that bring us to there, and Jesus says to her, He says, "Where are your? You know what happened to your accusers? Is there no one here to accuse you?" And she says, "No, Lord." And you know it's funny. I know that this is totally uh, subject and, uh, subjective and conjecture on my part. You cannot really. Uh, no one could, could uh, substantiate one way or the another, what, one way or the other what I'm going to say. But to me, it sounds like the context and, and everything of the story sounds like there's almost regret in the woman's voice. no one. It's almost like in a perverse way, she would like for the judgment to fall, for this wretched story that has brought her to this point to somehow Come to an end, even if it meant the end of her life. Now I again that's totally conjecture on my part, except that I, I can relate to it. No one, there's no one, no one left, Lord. And then Jesus says those remarkable words. He says, Neither do I condemn you. And then he says Go. And he handed her the keys to her future. Go. Now, go and sin no more. The history, the stuff that brought you to this point, done, done. Now, I'm not telling you go and then repeat all that. (laughs) No, he says go and sin no more. And it wasn't, it wasn't um, uh, him uh, cautioning her. No, don't sin anymore. Don't do this all over again. I don't want to see you back here in three years. It wasn't that he was saying, "Here's the keys to your future, and all that baggage is gone." Go and sin no more. Live a life apart from everything that brought you to this point. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just remarkable? It's hard to believe but many of us in this room have experienced it. And a lot of us, the rest of us, I believe, kind of need to experience that today. I'm thankful to God for tomorrow because tomorrow is free of today's shackles. The things that bound me today and in my past tomorrow, and God's economy is free of that. Free of that. I don't drag that forward. (laughs) God's tomorrow for my life is free of today's shackles. That's what what we read in chapter 8, verse 11 of the Gospel of John. I'm also thankful for tomorrow because tomorrow is filled with the hope of purpose. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verses um, 10 and 11, it says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, these words are talking ab- uh, about. Um, Jeremiah is prophesying and uh, he's talking to the people of the southern kingdom of Israel, the people of Judah, who are about to be taken off uh, into bondage or slavery uh, by the Babylonians. And this doesn't come as an isolated instance either. There's a backstory. A long Messy backstory of how the people of God have been warned again and again. God speaking through the prophets over and over and over. In fact, you, you know, uh, a guy I know calls that section of the Bible the sticky pages because you get, you know, you buy these Bibles that have this gold kind of gilding on the edges, and if you don't open them to separate them, they stick together. And there's a whole lot of stuff right in the middle of the Bible that people don't like to read because it's so depressing. It's God over and over and over and over speaking into the situation of his people's idolatry and unfaithfulness and unrighteousness. And he says, please, stop going that direction. Turn back to me. Let me heal you. Let me save you. Let me give you the tomorrow that I planned for you. And they wouldn't listen, and they just keep going. And now Jeremiah Jeremiah is prophesying, okay, the end. It's time to to pay the piper has come. And you're going to be in bondage again to the people of Babylon. But after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. Because I, my thoughts toward you, they're not about the past, and they're not about the bondage. My thoughts towards you, they're about your future and a and hope for that future. When God thinks about you and me, he doesn't think about our past. He doesn't think about the backstory. He doesn't think about the consequences of that backstory. He's thinking about tomorrow and what he's going to do tomorrow. So I thank God for tomorrow because it's filled with the hope of purpose, not just maintenance, but of purpose. I'm also thankful to God for tomorrow because tomorrow is infused with joy. And Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5, say, sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment his favor for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. I'm also grateful for tomorrow. I thank God for tomorrow because in God's, from God's perspective, tomorrow is renewed every single day. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 say, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I, I, I'm certain there must be some analog for uh, young women. But since I'm, I'm not a woman, I, I don't know what that would be. I do know what it is for a young man. The thing that marks the before and the after A car. Before car, after car. Am I right? Life before car has no resemblance to life after car. And when you get that set of keys, it's like stepping into tomorrow. And... Dear one, in a very crude way, I mean, my my analogy is crude, but that's what's happening here with this woman when Jesus says, go and sin no more, and then gives her the keys to her future. It's not gonna be anything like the past. It's gonna be everything about what God planned.